Let me get, invite you to get your Bibles now and turn to the book of Exodus, of course, in uh, chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 18 through 26. That's through the end of the chapter. Uh, for those of you that may be with us for the first time or visiting with us uh, uh, online, um, it is our practice to work our way through the book of the Bible. Um, we don't feel that we need to make the Word of God relevant. It is relevant. Uh, and what we find is as we just take time to study it, it, it is impacting us. It is giving us direction for what we need in the very hour that we're living. And uh, we're thankful for that. And we are committed to allowing to it to, to speak to our situation. And today, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 26. Now, I know that you've all gotten settled, um, but I want to invite you to stand up as we read the Word of God out of respect for the Word of God. And um, then we will pray and get into the sermon. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 26. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver uh, to abide with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and a sacrifice on it, uh, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We understand, Lord, that this is your word. You have revealed it to us, first to the, the people of Israel, but Lord, as it continues to extend to us, Lord, we receive it as your very word, uh, breathed out for us. And Lord, we are thankful for that. But we ask, Lord, that as we now place ourselves under your word, that you would have freedom to do your will through your word by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And, Lord, what, um, what we know not, would you teach us? And I, Lord, just ask that, again, uh, that I would simply be your messenger, that you would be on display, that your will, Lord, would be what is resounding through our time this morning, and that your people would be strengthened and equipped to glorify you with their lives. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I want to begin a question here this morning. It's quite simple, and I think we can all relate to it, and it's this. How do you respond when people give you instructions? You might have actually had to interact with that this morning. Someone might have said, well, why don't you go ahead and sit here, and something in you is going to respond in a certain way. Maybe you're you know, going on a flight, and you're, you're, you're heading to security, and you're getting ready to pull out your global entry card so you can get into TSA, and the agent there says, oh, TSA is shut down. And so now you've got to stand in this big, long line to get through, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to actually make the plane flight. Or maybe your teacher tells you that you have a group assignment, those dreaded group assignments, right, that will be graded both on content and group participation, and you're just hitting your head saying, no, no. Or how about... Uh, when you go to the doctor, he tells you that because of your condition, that you will need to exercise uh, and restrict your diet to lean meats and green leafy vegetables. Oh, those are just horrible words, aren't they? When your father tells you that you can't go over to your friend's house and spend the night, or when the police pull you over for not stopping fully at the stop sign, how do you respond? And friends, we tend to allow our agendas as well as our perceptions of the person giving us the instructions to determine how we are going to respond. So when one of your siblings 
gives you instructions, we can be tempted, or you can be tempted to say, who died and made you king or queen over me? I'm not going to listen to you. You're just my sibling, right? Or when older parents warn us about the kind of behavior and attitude that we're having, they're observing in us this attitude. How do we respond? Yes, Dad, I appreciate your kind and gracious wisdom and will take an honest look at my character. Or is it more thinking in your head, Dad is so old and out of touch with reality. I mean, he still uses a flip phone, right? He doesn't even have a Twitter account. What does he know? When your teacher gives you instructions about homework and the assignment of that homework, you're quick to complain and think, what is with this teacher? Does she really think these assignments are going to help me at all? This is ridiculous. Or when your boss tells you how he or she wants something done, do you respond with a smile but an inner sigh that's saying, he really has no clue. But it's one of the things that he likes to do, to be in charge and to give instructions. Now, friends, this is where we live, isn't it? We're living in a world where people give us instructions and we respond to them. So the, the question for us right now is, how do you respond when people give you instructions? It's a valid question. But this text this, this, after, this morning is taking us further, isn't it? It's not asking us, how do we respond when people give us instructions? It's asking us, how do we respond when it is God that is giving us instructions? How do we respond in particular to these Ten Commandments? And it's instructing us, it's encouraging us to rightly respond to God's instructions. That's the theme. That's the proposition this morning. That's really what's driving this text. How are you, well, first of all, I'll say, how are the people of Israel going to respond? And then, of course, the question for us is, how are we going to respond to the truth of God when it is revealed to us? Now, we've just finished these 10 weeks of instruction on the 10 words or 10 commandments as we know them. And some of you have contacted me saying things like, I, I never saw the Ten Commandments that way before. Or, when you began your sermon, I was sure that I was not guilty of breaking this commandment, but now I see that I am. Or, I didn't realize the breadth and the depth of the Ten Commandments, that they are ultimately issues of the heart, or, or that there's so many places in the Word of God that are actually reflecting back to the Ten Commandments that I never saw before. That's all good stuff, friends. But I wonder if in your heart, you or some of you or the person next to you is thinking a little bit differently, thinking Pastor Rod and pastors like him are making way too much of a big deal about these commandments. They're just trying to control us by using the Bible so that we can't do this or we can't do that. I'm not worshiping any other god. I'm not making any idols of graven images. I don't use the Lord's name in vain. I'm, I'm here on Sunday. I take care of my parents. I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal, at least nothing that rises to anything significant. I certainly don't murder. I always tell the truth and never lie. I'm not a greedy person. I mean, these are things that, that we ponder. These are things that we think. So we need to ask ourselves, how are you responding to the word of God. Now, let me just quickly remind you of how we've gotten to this place in this text. Because I think context helps us understand what is going on. If you remember one of the songs that we sang this morning, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we usually in our minds think, oh, that's a Christmas song. But if you look in your, in your bulletin, you'll notice the second stanza there. It talks all about God coming to his people on the mountain. And here, remember, at the beginning of the book of, of Exodus, Israel doesn't know their God. They have an idea, but they're enslaved. And God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, if you remember that. And God raises him up, and he comes to deliver his enslaved people. He heard their cry for help, and he has come to rescue them. And so God, through the plagues, is confronting Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. This is the context that Israel was living their lives in. And he's showing by all of his plagues that their gods and Pharaoh himself, who identifies himself as a god, are nothing in comparison to him. 
and then as they are taken out of, uh, of Egypt, in particular, at the beginning of that, they are sheltered in place, ex- uh, having Passover together as the last plague is taking place. God is showing his power and his majesty as well as his protection. And then he sends the people out with much plunder, if you remember, and they go out to the Red Sea, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're out here. But all of a sudden, boom, they look behind them, and there's the army of Egypt coming after them. Panic sets in, but what does God do? God delivers them. He opens up the sea. They walk through on dry land, and they get out to the other side, while at the same time, the army of Egypt is destroyed by the waters now that are coming back over them. And then once they get into the wilderness, they wander, and God provides uh, bread, and he provides water, miraculously demonstrating his provision and his power. And then, now that they're gathered at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they've heard God articulate these ten words, these ten words that we know to be the Ten Commandments. So I'm just giving you a brief highlight of how we've gotten here. These people have been told to, to go out into the wilderness because it is in the wilderness where they are going to serve the Lord, which is another way of saying they're going to worship the Lord. They're going to meet the Lord. And here they are now at this place of meeting because God now speaks audibly from the mountain. He's not speaking through Moses. He's speaking from the mountain to the people. So it's been quite a journey. And with God's provision, protection, and power on, clearly on display. And now our text will answer the question, how do the people of Israel respond to God and his instructions? Do they pay attention and listen? Do they respond with an attitude of obedience or an attitude of defiance? And of course, it is asking us the same question, isn't it? Are, are we going to respond uh, to God with an attitude of obedience? Are we going to listen or are we going to be defiant? And what we'll find is there's a twofold response. Response number one is that they fear God. Response number two is that they worship God. But I would like to say this. There is a particular kind of fear that God is after. And there's a particular kind of worship that God is after. And we need to make sure that we understand the distinction between those things. So let's consider, first of all, the particular kind of fear. That's this verses 18 through 21. And I want us to notice, first of all, how the people respond now to these Ten Commandments. And I want to just fo- focus, first of all, on verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Notice, first of all, what they see, what they see. Now, we're to be reminded that the children of Israel are standing at the foot of the mountain. But I would draw your attention back to chapter 19. And if you remember in chapter 19, in particular verse 16, God had descended with signs and wonders. Read with me chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Notice what we read next, verse 18 through 19 of the same chapter. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. So these signs and wonders preceding the meeting with God Uh, uh, and his revelation of his word. And now that God was done speaking to the people, there continues to be thunder, flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and a smoking mountain. You see that? So these signs and wonders are are kind of, what I say, bookends to God's revelation. And they are there to authenticate the uh, the presence and the commandments of God. They're there to say, God is speaking, and they're there to say, and this is what he says. The people had not moved, but God had come to meet with them just as he has said. And it's a reminder that these signs and wonders, 
that we see taking place in the ministry of Christ, even in the Gospels, the healings, the miracles, the casting out of demons, although they were acts of compassion, they were ultimately having the primary purpose of authenticating the message of Christ. Mark, in his Gospel, says, I come preaching the Gospel of God. It's all about the preaching of the Gospel. We see that very, very clearly. At the same time, it's true, the ministry of the apostles. We see them using signs and wonders, but in every case, they are there to authenticate the gospel message that is being preached. So friends, the signs and the wonders were never the point. In each case, it was the message of God, that message that he gave, that was the point. Now let me just try and explain it a little bit differently here or just add to it. The emphasis in this encounter with God is not for God to keep performing signs and wonders, but for his word to be listened to and obeyed. Somehow, many in the, or under the umbrella of Christendom have things backwards and are pursuing manifestations of signs and wonders rather than listening to and obeying the word of God. Friends, we must see this. The children of Israel don't say, hey, God, can you do that lightning thing again? Can you, hey, where's, the, where's, that, where's that thunder? Give us the thunder. We like the thunder. Where's the trumpet? Let the tru- oh, the smoke. Ooh, here comes the smoke, guys. Oh, isn't this great? God, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That's not what they do. They don't like it. It's not nice. The thunder and the lightning and the, the smoke and the trumpet. That causes them to tremble. We're told here they were afraid and they trembled. I mean, they were physically shaking at the impression and the interaction they had with God. Yes, from what they saw and what they heard, as far as the the, the signs and wonders, but also from the very word of God that was revealed to them. So let us be reminded that it's a fearful thing to encounter God face to face. It would seem that much of Christianity has become too cavalier, too casual, too comfortable in their approach with God. Yes, because of God's grace, we have been welcomed into the family of God. We celebrate that. Yes, Because of Christ, we are declared righteous and holy in his sight. We celebrate that. Yes, we are called to come boldly to the throne of grace, and we celebrate that. But none of those realities say that God has changed in his character. God is still God and will continue to be all that he is. He is our Father, but he is God our Father. He is our friend but he is God our friend. And we must never lose sight of the fact that God has condescended to us. He has welcomed us. He has redeemed us. He has sanctified us. He has cleansed us. And that comes with a new intimacy. No more veil. No more temple. Free access to him through Christ. But he is still God in every aspect of his being. And so we are still to fear him. And friends, this is really important. Remember, as Israel came to the mountain initially, God actually had to tell Moses, put boundaries and limits around the mountain. Why? So that the people don't come up. They didn't know what they were dealing with. What's all this going on? We're going to go up the mountain. Well, that's not what we have now. You see, to fear God means that God is big. He's not joking. He's not playing games. He's he's not a tame lion, as Lewis would say. He is not to be trifled with. As you know, I grew up in England, and one of the popular dishes there, my mom used to make it all the time at big celebrations, is trifle. Anyone had trifle before? Trifle is a mix of, oh, angel food cake, jello, custard, Oh, various fruits, uh, whipping cream, some nuts on the top. It's kind of a a light and airy dessert, which means you can go back for seconds and thirds, right? That's that's the point. Um, But the idea here is it's, it's light and airy. So when we say God is not to be trifled with, he's not to be treated lightly. 
He is to be treated with seriousness. There is substance to God. He is on display here. And have we forgotten the godness of God? Because of our, I want to say, American Christianity that has been eclipsed from the true character of the gospel and the God behind that gospel. So when I say God is not to be trifled with, I'm saying he's not to be treated lightly. No, you pay attention to him. You listen to him. You consider what he says with seriousness. You obey him. You fear him. Why? Because he's not a tame lion. He's God. This is what they saw. <laughs> Secondly, this is, notice where they stand. It says they stood far off. And this is the point I was making in chapter 19. God said to Moses, put these boundaries around and we, we saw the people go eagerly wanting to go up the mountain. And now, after they've heard you know, God, they've seen God on display, they've been affected. They're not eager to run up the mountain anymore. They're standing afar off. They're not going to push the boundaries. They're not going to push the limits. No, they're making sure that they are afar off. They had been so impacted by their encounter with God that they were filled with fear, and they recognized his holy otherness and the danger that they were in to be in the presence of God. So they feared his judgment. They feared his power and presence in the signs and wonders. They likely feared the implications of what they had heard in the Ten Commandments, wondering if they could keep them or not. Now, friends, I wonder if you have a fear of heights. I do. And actually, having a fear of heights is a good thing. It's not a phobia, necessarily. Not a phobia that cripples me, but it certainly is a natural fear of heights that God has put into my humanity. And there's a reason why they put guardrails at the edge of a cliff and a sign that says, danger, cliff. It's not so that you can get your frisbee out and start playing around. It's so that you will take the situation seriously. It's so that you will stay away from the edge. The guardrail doesn't say, Hey, come up to me, climb over me, somehow go beyond me. But you know when you see those guardrails, th there's always little paths going down, right? Someone says, eh, don't need that. Listen, friends, a fear of heights is a good thing. These guardrails are saying, don't be a fool. Treating this cliff area lightly might result in you meeting your maker today and not in the way that you want. The sign is calling you to see it is serious, it's dangerous. And if you are a normal person, you don't like danger. It's a bad thing. You want to stay away from the cliff edge. So friends, God did not speak his commandments with the sound of a harp or elevator music. No, he speaks his commandments with the sound of lightning and thunder and trumpets, and smoke. Why? Because he wants his people to take his word seriously, for them to know who he is. It's what they saw. This is where they stood. And notice now what they say. Verse 19, and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So what they're saying is, we can't take God speaking to us directly anymore. He's too powerful. He's too holy. He's too righteously demanding. If God continues to speak to us, we will die. And friends, this is not weak believers. These people are actually responding rightly to the very presence of God. They understand what it is to stand in his presence and to have the right kind of fear. What we need, and what they're saying is what we need, is a mediator between us and God. So you, Moses, you speak to us yourself. The you here in the Hebrew is emphatic. We want you, Moses, to mediate for us. Now, one of the things that people do when they find themselves in trouble is they hire a lawyer. Or a lawyer is appointed to them. And the job of that lawyer is to, might want to say, mediate between you and the judge. That lawyer understands the legal words. He understands the process. He understands how to come before a judge and, judge and make a case and, and plead someone's innocence. So they hire a lawyer 
to represent them before the judge, to speak with the judge on their behalf, to replay, uh, to relay, I should say, what the judge says and what is important. So the lawyer becomes your representative. He is your mediator. And that is what the children of Israel are asking here. Now, sometimes people, this, people say things in Christendom that just kind of boggle your mind because they really don't understand things. They say, say things like this, I just want to be able to come before God directly. If only he would show himself to me, then I would believe. You do know, you don't know what it means to come to God directly. You don't. But we're so casual in our Christianity, we're flippant with our, our kind of Christian language that we say things that we need to think through. Because anyone who has a, the slightest glimpse of God's true glory has been filled with fear. You see it over and over and over in Scripture, right? So Israel was right in asking Moses to be their mediator, to represent them before God the judge, to tell them what God says. Now, if you remember, Job, when he was feeling the injustice of his suffering, cried out to God for a mediator. This is how he says it, Job 9.33. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. I mean, he wasn't hearing from God, but he was at least crying out for a mediator to somehow come and interact so that his, his situation and his questions would be answered. And in the Gospels, God provides the mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would explain it this way. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now hear this, friends. You cannot come boldly to the throne of grace without Christ as your mediator. So when we say, oh, I just want to go straight to God, what we're missing is the fact that the only way that you can come straight to God is through Jesus Christ. Now we, we use the language, hey, I'm going to meet with God. Well, you are meeting with God, but you're meeting with God through Christ. Now notice, They're not saying, the Israelites here are not saying we don't want to listen to God. They're not saying we are not going to obey his commandments. They're saying he's too mighty, he's too magnificent, he's too powerful for us to meet him face to face. So we need you, Moses, to stand between us and God. And friends, that is what Jesus Christ does for us. He stands as mediator between us and God, and we have freedom then to come to the Father through his Son. Now that is a blessing, friends. But that's the reality, Uh, one of the implications of us now being uh, regenerated, uh, embracing the gospel. You know, we are not righteous in and of ourselves, are we? We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If we go to God without his righteousness, look out. So we've got to make sure we're we're seeing things. And, And we're seeing it right here in the Old Testament, right? Now notice then, Um, how Moses responds. We've seen how the people respond. Notice how Moses responds. He immediately responds to their request by doing two things that a mediator is called to do. He speaks to them for God, and then he goes to God for the people. Notice, first of all, he speaks to the people. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, you might be reading that and scratching your head. Do not fear so that you can fear. Do not fear God so that you can fear God. Now, what's going on here? Well, there must be a kind of fear that we ought to have when approaching God. And there must also be another fear that we ought never to lack when approaching God. So this gets to the very heart of what it means to fear God. You might want to say, first of all, God doesn't want you to be afraid of him. No, he is calling Israel out of Egypt to meet with them. He's saying, come. Isn't that what he says? Come. I want to meet with you. I want to be close to you. I don't want you to be afraid of me. Come. Don't be afraid. But he's also saying, secondly, when you come, don't come carelessly. Don't come lightly. So there's a particular kind of fear of God that we should have, a fear of who God is in his very being. That means that we come tentatively, but we come 
because of what Christ has done, but we also come making sure that in our fear of God, we're not coming carelessly. So he says, closeness, yes. Carelessness, no. Now, some people think that now that they're God's children, they no longer have to worry about obedience. Hey, they're all under grace, right? And, all right, yes, it's true. We're all under grace, but let's not use that as some kind of a tool to get us out from our obedience. We're under grace, but we're still commanded to be obedient. That's all part of our sanctification. Obedience doesn't disappear when we receive the grace of salvation. God still requires it. And here, Moses says, God has come to test you. Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to listen? Are you going to take me seriously? Are you going to treat me lightly? And the reason God is testing them is twofold. He says right here, so that you would fear him, so that you would not sin. Friends, both of those results are wonderful realities. If God's children fear God rightly and they avoid sin, that's a good thing. And you see, this is, this is God saying, I have something good that I'm trying to do here. I want you to fear me. And I want you to learn what it means to not sin. So friends, there are two kinds of fear. There's a fear of God that is full of reverence and awe and respect. And there's a fear that makes God's children take his instructions with the utmost seriousness. One of them says, I'm going to step away. The other one says, I'm going to come. And they're both good, and they're both right, and they're both holy. And friends, fear is not a bad thing, is it? If you don't fear, you would likely be dead right now. Do you fear driving in the rain? Especially here in California when it doesn't rain that much? You better be. I hope so. Do you fear eating jalapenos? It's a good kind of fear. Do you fear firing a gun? I hope so. Even if you're skilled at it, it's a dangerous weapon. Do you fear falling to your death when you go skydiving? I don't plan on going skydiving, so I don't fear it. But if I did, I would fear it. And that's a good thing, which would mean that I would pay attention in the class that happens before you go skydiving, right? Do you fear losing all your teeth? All of you right now are licking your teeth and wondering if they're all there. That's why you brush them and floss them. Fear is a good thing. So fear is there to help us to not be arrogant, to not listen to the taunting of friends who are wanting us to do something that is foolish, to not push the limits, to not, again, be foolish. This is what Moses is saying. But now I'll notice, secondly, what Moses does. He's Moses draws near to God. Look at verse 21. The people stood afar off. They're still staying afar off. Even after Moses says, don't fear. And God's come to test you so that you will fear and not sin. They're still standing afar off. That's not a lack of faith on, that part, on their part. It's their understanding of the character of God. Moses, you need to represent us. We can't do this. So the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Not only does Moses speak to the people for God, but we see him now draw near to God in the thick darkness. He's entering into God's presence on behalf of the people. Now, friends, rather than us blow through this, we need to see this as extremely profound. All the people are standing afar off. Just the contrast here. They're standing afar off. They know that they can't stand before God face-to-face. But God has chosen Moses to be the mediator. And what, what do we see? We see him now traipsing up the mountain into the darkness, into this place where God is present. I mean, that's an incredible scene. How is he able to do that? The only reason he's able to do that is because God has identified him as the mediator. He did that at the burning bush, continues to do that, nurtures him, and he is able now to speak to God on behalf of the people and speak to the people on behalf of God. And of course, the picture here is of Christ himself. It's only Christ that can go to the Father and mediate. It doesn't happen with Mary. It doesn't happen with any other saints. It happens only through Jesus Christ. And he goes into the darkness of the gospel. He goes into that dark place, bearing the the weight of our sin, and he mediates for us 
with the Father. It's a beautiful thing. It's a profound thing. So God is saying, I want you to fear me. I don't just want any kind of fear, but the fear that leads to obedience, a fear that causes you to come close, but also to be careful. That's the fear of God. That's the first response. The second response is a particular kind of worship. Now hear this. It is this particular kind of fear of God that leads to the particular kind of worship of God. This is what we're seeing here. True worship must come from a context and attitude of God-centered and God-honoring fear. And that will be screaming at us in this text, right? If God's people seek to approach God and worship in a cavalier way, that comes as a result of not properly fearing God. So what we have here is not simply a call to any kind of worship, but to a particular kind of worship. Now in the rest of the the text, God will be speaking to us, um, or speaking to the people through Moses, and we'll talk about two things, idols and altars. The folly of making images to worship and the importance of making altars for worship. And of course, this is in the Old Testament administration of Judaism, right? And it's a reminder that the proper worship involves a combination of things that must not be done, as well as, secondly, things that must be done when it comes to worship. And as the Lord speaks, he reveals to us four helpful and practical guidelines for how we approach him in worship. So, four guidelines for worship from these particular verses. First of all, worship is to be word-centered. We worship God through his revealed word, not with man-made images. Let me just show you that here from the text. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel. He's speaking. He's giving instruction. That revelation, that word that he's giving is the basis, is the foundation of what Israel is to do. He says, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall not, nor shall you make uh, for yourselves gods of gold. Isn't it? It's interesting language, isn't it? They saw the signs and wonders of thunder, lightning, trumpets, and smoke, but they didn't actually see God speak. Interesting language. You saw me speak. You've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Well, the evidence of the signs and wonders back up the actual message then that he was giving. They saw God with their ears. And friends, that's really important. And this is what he's driving at. He's saying, I'm not a God to be seen. I'm a God to be heard. So if you want to fellowship with God, don't make an idol out of silver or gold. It won't, I won't be in that idol because I'm not a God to be seen. I'm a God to be listened to. No, you will see me through the listening of my word. You will, see, you will worship me through praising me and obeying what I have said in my word. The worship of an image is a violation of the second commandment. They already heard that. And it's revealing that God would re- reinforce his instructions here. Presumably because he knows that man's tendency is to fashion a God and bow down to it, which we know will happen very soon. (laughs) They would rather do that than listen to a God who's revealed himself through his word. Isn't Isn't that a sad reality of the church today? We would rather, you know, be excited about the forms rather than actually the substance. Scripture is full of descriptions about the character and the attributes of God. They're wonderful, they're marvelous, they're overwhelming, but those attributes don't reveal his physical appearance. It is true that in Scripture, God condescends to us by using anthropomorphisms. I know, big word. It simply means that he uses human terminology to describe himself, right? So he talks about, you know, the arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the finger of God. Right? He talks in ways that we can understand and we can comprehend. But what we understand is that God is spirit. That is his essence. 
He's not a God to be seen. He's a God to be heard. And he relates to us in ways that we can comprehend for our benefit. So any idol or any representation, even made with the most precious metals of silver and gold, is actually reducing God to something that he is not. It is profane to him. It is dishonoring God by diminishing his magnificence. So he says, don't make any gods out of silver or gold. Do not. And and they do not uh, and will not represent me at all. But do listen to my word. You see me when you listen to it and obey my word. So make that a priority. And friends, we're not going to take the time here, but you can see throughout Scripture the word of God, the word of God, the word of God is central. When the word of God was... was, was, uh, not present. If you remember the story of Nehemiah, and they, 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 they build the, the walls, and they gather together afterward, and the people are chanting, bring out the book, bring out the book, bring out the book. Notice they're not saying, God, send thunders and lightnings. They're saying, we want the word. We want the covenant. We want to be reminded about what you have done for us, your people, and what we are required to do. And afterwards, they repent of their sins, and they have this incredible celebration, and it's all rooted in the word. So friends, we have a worship here that is to be word-centered. That's the first thing. Secondly, worship is to be simple. I'll say it a little differently. We worship God in simplicity not with extravagance. Notice verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now, first of all, I just want to say this. God is saying, I want to come to you. (laughs) I want to interact with you. I want to, to commune with you. But there's something that you need to understand as you come to worship me. God says that there'll be two kinds of altars that you can build. In verse 24, we have the first one. He speaks about an altar of earth. In verse 25, he speaks about an altar of stone. And just plain stone. Not chiseled or hewn, but just plain stone. I heard one commentator say, what God is saying here is build a barbecue pit. Just a simple, plain, old barbecue pit. Now, of course, he was from the South, so people understood what he meant, right? The point here is it's simple. It's it's not supposed to be extravagant. It's just made out of earth. It's just made out of stone. And our human wisdom, however, we're so eager to move from simplicity to sophistication. And we complicate things by making the elaborate and extravagant, things elaborate and extravagant when God calls his people to function with simplicity. We're to be more concerned about what is being sacrificed on the altar than what the altar is made of. You hear that? But oh, in our humanity, we we love starting to focus on the aesthetics to the neglect of the substance. On these altars, they're to be burning sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings. This is how they are going to interact with God. This is how they are going to be restored to God, through the sacrifice on the altar, not through the altar, but through what is done on the altar, through the representation of his ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, being sacrificed on that altar. And friends, there's a distinction under the broad umbrella of Christendom between what is called high church and low church. It really, this distinction comes more from the Anglican uh, stream that is out there, but throughout history. High church is typically full of ceremony and incense, investments. That's like the clothing and the stuff that you take uh, along with that time of worship, right, that the, 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 the priests or the, the, the leaders would have. Uh, to, to have gold plates and gold chalices and just beautiful, ornate things around. It's all about the pomp and the beauty and the ceremony and all this kind of stuff. That's high church. And what happens in high church is that the word disseminates, disappears. It's all about the, the, the ceremony, isn't it? And then there's low church, which historically came as a result of the Reformation. that said, we want to move away from these things, these, these vestments, 
we want to move away from it all being about the clergy to actually embodying the whole body of Christ. And so uh, low church is really emphasizing the simplicity of prayer and singing and involving the congregation in what's happening. Certainly there needs to be pastoral leadership, but it, it isn't about all the, all the, the gold and the silver and the, and the clothing and the things like that. But let's not fool ourselves, friends. Putting that into a modern-day context where modern Protestants are gathered in evangelical churches around this country, there is a modern version of high church. And you might have experienced it where people are coming to the church in the, the most trendy and expensive clothing that they can wear, in particular pastors. I mean, look at pastor's shoes. I wonder how much he spent on those shoes. Look at that suit. This is, this is not an Armani suit. This is a suit I actually had shipped in from uh, someplace in Italy. I mean, this is, this is an expensive suit. I'm only going to give my best, but look at me. Look at my vestment. So it just comes in different forms, right? Or the stage light shows. Woo-hoo. Man, oh, man. So much money. So much pyrotechnics going on in churches today. There to impress you. There to somehow wow you. Or maybe there's this one. Expensive Bibles. I don't mean to step on anyone's toe if you have an expensive Bible. Do you realize you can... You can spend like $300 on a Bible because of a particular kind of paper they're using or a particular kind of, of leather that is binding that Bible. Can I just tell you something? The words are still the same. But if we're walking around saying, well, look at my Bible. I've got the expensive Bible. You know, it's, just, it's not just red letter. It's gold letter. You, know? I mean, it's, you, you see where this is going. Right? We, we, we have this tendency to do these things even in our churches. And God's saying, no, 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 worship is to be simple. That doesn't mean unsophisticated. It just means it's not cluttered with all this nonsense that we naturally want to bring to the table. So worship is to be word-centered. It's to be simple. It is, third, to be God-focused. We worship God alone, not man's skill or creativity. And this is somewhat like what we've, we've already talked about, but it, it's elaborated a little bit in verse 25. In other words, God, God, in other words God is, worship is God-centered, not man-centered. Now, it says in verse 25, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Now, there could be a number of different interpretations here, but I think what, what God is getting at here is that you're, you're not to add somehow your skill to the stone so that somehow, as we saw earlier, you're mo more focused on the actual altar than you are on what is happening on that altar. You're amazed at what that altar looks like. Oh, look how wonderful it is. Look at that. How in the world did they create that altar that way? It's so beautiful. But friends, what God is saying here is that when you do that, you are profaning me. So the emphasis should not be on the aesthetics of the altar, but on God whom you are worshiping at the altar. Putting this into a modern-day context, we must ask ourselves, are we worshiping worship rather than worshiping God? You ask your average person why they are choosing a particular church to go to. Oh, man. This church is wonderful. It's incredible, all the things they have. The, 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 the band, man, they, ooh, wow, it's just, uh, it's quite an experience. And the buildings, man, they're just absolutely incredible. They're beautiful. They sing catchy tunes. But friends, the goal for us as a church, the goal that God is saying for the church is not to wow people with the aesthetics but to be faithful with the God-centered proclamation of the gospel and songs that are sung that are robust with theology that is accurate and reflects the true nature of what God has revealed in his word. And that's why we try our best to choose good songs and not kind of fluffy songs like Oceans. There's so many songs in Christendom today, you could just change the word for God for a boyfriend or girlfriend and it would say the same thing. We want songs that have substance to them. 
that take us to the place where we're looking at God, that we're praising him for the things that he's done, not just making us feel good because it's catchy. See, friends, this is, this is the problem. God is saying, I want you to come worship me. I don't want you to come and worship man's skill. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I want to be careful because what we have here is not a prohibition against having anything nice in the church. I think what we're able to do here on a day like today is something nice. Niceness is not a bad thing, but the focus shouldn't be on the niceness. I mean, if you're finding yourself going to a church where you're so caught up with, look how beautiful the windows are, and look how beautiful the stage is, and look how beautiful this is, and you haven't been able to listen to the pastor preach, something's wrong. And as a pastor, as someone in leadership, I need to be asking myself, are we doing any of that so people are distracted from what is important? But it's natural for man to want to say, let's do something flashy. What we should be known about is that the word of God is central, that the the gospel is proclaimed boldly, and that we as a community are placing ourselves under that word, seeking to live it out for his glory. We may have a good band, and we do have a good band. We may have, you know, nice facilities, and we're thankful for the facilities that we have. But you know what? I've been to Bolivia. I've been to places where we've done church in someone's front yard in the darkness, and they're using flashlights to say, you know, I'm preaching like this with a flashlight, and there's bugs flying all over the place. That's the church. There's nothing extravagant about it. That might be difficult because I'm not used to it, but that's how people worship. But if I came in with all my clothing and my incense, kind of walking around, all this, it'd just be nonsense. And what those people need is the word of God opened up for them. So when it's man's creativity that captures your attention, you may be in a place that really isn't worshiping God. Now, friends, it's, it's, it's sad but there are churches all around our country and all around our world that are beautiful. And they, they, were, they were built with the idea of glorifying God. But you walk into those churches, and they are beautiful. And they've got beautiful images and beautiful stained glass and beautiful this and beautiful that. But they are void, not only of the gospel, but even of God's word. But oh, they're beautiful churches. No, they're buildings. Buildings that are empty tombs that are not doing anything for the cause of Christ. If anything, they're distracting. God's church is where God's people are gathered around his word, praying and worshiping and singing together. And the emphasis and the focus is not on the form, but it's on the substance. So we worship God not man. should be God-focused, not man-focused. The fourth um, instruction here about worship is worship must be modest. We worship God modestly, not with the world's sensuality. Look at verse 26. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, remember, apart from what God is revealing here, what Israel knew about primarily from a religious perspective was what they experienced in Egypt. They saw the religion of Egypt on display. It's part of the reason why God was confronting those gods, not just for Egypt, but also for Israel to see that those gods that were being worshipped were empty. But there are forms of worship now that took place in Egypt as well as the surrounding nations where they also would have altars and they also would have these stairs that would rise up. And part of their worship was the activity of sensuality in some way, shape, or form in that worship. And one of the ways that this can happen is when you walk upstairs and you're the person in worship. And in those days, I'm not exactly sure how they did it, but apparently there wasn't much protection underneath, if you understand what the text is saying. When someone is walking up, well, it's not exactly modest. So don't do that. 
Now, we go to the New Testament, we find even as the gospel goes out during the, the diaspora and people in different locations, think of Ephesus in particular, and people literally would go to the temple of Diana, and if you remember, the image of Diana was basically a, a woman who was covered with breasts, so emphasizing here the sensual nature of that kind of worship. They would go to worship by going to the temple prostitutes. And God is saying... Human sensuality should have no place whatsoever in the context of worship. Now, just think about this. When, when, a, when a, this happens, when a worship leader looking gal to be up here so that people will pay attention, I've heard this before, they are barking up a very dangerous tree. In fact, if someone is a distraction because they're up there, you might say, maybe that person shouldn't be up here. It would be right for us to say, look, if you're involved in leadership and you're involved in worship, you're involved in being up, make sure that you're dressed modestly. But guess what? This isn't just for the people that are in front. This is for all of us. God's people should just come to worship with modesty. And, and listen, it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a modesty that we we know about, and sometimes it's, it's modesty that we are ignorant of, and sometimes it's unintentional. And as God's people, we need to learn a little bit more about what that might be, what that might look like, and not be offended. Now, some people in our present context are going to say something like this. Well, that's their problem. They shouldn't be thinking that way. Well, from a kingdom perspective, we should be saying that's our problem. Because we don't want to put anything that's going to be a stumbling block in the way from actually having God clearly understood and God clearly um, revealed. Now, we've got to be careful. We don't want to create something that's, you know, this legalistic world that we're walking through. No, but there's an attitude of modesty that we need to consider and consider for one another. And I'm not just speaking to the ladies. This is just as true for the men. So in the context, the people of God here are to gather and to worship God and to celebrate that worship by being careful that they listen to the instructions that God gives here and not to expose their nakedness. In fact, later, um, and I think it's in, in Leviticus, God specifically describes the kind of garments a priest should wear and actually solves that problem. But he's saying, you, you need to come with modesty, not with the world's sensuality. But friends, hear this. If the world wants to sell something, what do they do? They add sensuality to it. And many in the church think, ah, if we're going to attract people, what do we have to do? We add sensuality to it. So stick a picture of, you know, a really buff guy and a really, you know, really good-looking woman on your church, you know, website or something like that. Let you know the kind of people that actually come. And then they get here and they're like, you all lied to us. See, that's what the world does, right? It lies to you. You buy this car battery, and this gorgeous woman will come along with it. No, you're just buying a, a car battery. And the guy behind the counter, AutoZone, doesn't look like her. But the world uses sensuality to sell. The church should have nothing to do with that. And we need to be careful, even as people come into church, that that is not our point, you know. Look at how I'm dressed today, and look at, you know, hey, I'm, I'm cool, man. I'm chill, you know. I don't know, whatever it is. We're not coming for that purpose. And if that's the purpose you're coming for, repent. Because that's not what God desires. And I would encourage you just to rethink why you're gathered at the church. So, friends, this issue is for us up front as well as the whole congregation. Now, let's bring this to a close, some concluding thoughts. And these are just gleanings from the text. Before I get there, let me just emphasize something that I'm not spending a lot of time with this morning, but I do want to emphasize because we've emphasized it before. Take time to dig deeper into understanding Jesus Christ, your mediator. And just really seek to understand what it means and, and why it is that, that you can come boldly to the throne of grace. It's, it's not a cavalier coming. It is a confident coming, but it's based on something. It's not a careless coming. It's a it's a confident coming because Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, has paid for your sin. He's broken uh, the, the, the veil. He's come and made a way because of him and through him. 
And I just want to highlight also that there's an aspect here that God does test us to reveal uh, things to us, but also so that we would fear him and that we wouldn't sin. Those are two themes that come through this text that need more time and more discovery. But as it relates to, to, to pulling these things of, of the fear of the Lord and the worship of the Lord together, I want to just list off eight responses now that we should have to God's instructions, taking into consideration that the fear of God leads to the worship of God. And these are just one-word descriptions for us to kind of think through, okay? How should we respond to God's instructions? First of all, humbly. Now hear this. We don't deserve to hear from God. We don't deserve it. Yet God has graced us by breathing out his word and giving us an awareness of who he is and what we're like and this problem of sin and how to resolve it. So we respond humbly, but why would God even think to grace us with his word? Is a marvelous thing, isn't it? So we approach it humbly. Secondly, we respond respectfully. If God has chosen to reveal his word, then God's wisdom is worth listening to and respecting. Humbly, respectfully. Based on what he says and with the clarity of what he says, we can respond confidently. Now by that I mean if he is revealing our sin to us, we might, you know, we might panic, we might be fearful, we might fight that for a bit, but if we're humble and we're respectful and we're listening to what he's saying, we embrace what he's saying, we allow it to change us, and we can be confident of the forgiveness and the restoration he brings by virtue of the gospel and what he's revealed that flows out of the gospel. Humbly, respectfully, confidently, forth, thankfully, being reconciled now and knowing God's will is a true blessing. So we're thankful. We're not thankful just because, oh, it's time to be thankful. Our thankfulness is rooted in substance that has worked in us and produced a change. Thankfulness. Number five, attentively. We come to him attentively. God is careful, and he's clear in what he says. So don't assume you know. Pay attention and get his instructions right. We hear so many things in Christendom. Well, God says, you should not judge. So why are you judging? Friends, look at the text. Read what it says. Look at the context. Know what God means because it doesn't mean what you think it means. God is careful in what he says, and so should you be as you seek to worship him through reading his word. Be attentive. Six, repentantly. We respond to his instructions with repentance. God confronts, God exposes, and all these other attitudes so far are all part of the process of us coming to the place where we repent. Number seven, we respond obediently. Repentance isn't the end of the story. Repentance, might want to say, is the beginning now of a fresh pursuit of Christ-likeness and the fresh pursuit of obedience in our lives. So seek to do what he says and to do it, not grudgingly, but with joy. And finally, the eighth one, we respond realistically. Realistically. We know that if we fail, he is also ready to forgive. Now, we don't plan to fail, but we have an awareness of our sinful frailties that if we are going to fail, that he will forgive us of our sin, he'll restore our relationship with him. Now, there's probably other words we could list here, but I just wanted to interact here with the fact that we need the fear of God to help us understand how we interact with God, and that fear of God helps us then in how we worship God, right? And these, these, these statements here are all there to say these are the ways that we then can take all that and we can respond rightly to God's instructions. Our, our, our passage this morning is really a reminder to us all that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and truth. So we don't worship an idol. Why? Because God can't be seen. He's spirit. How do we worship him? As he has revealed to us, we worship him. That's the truth. God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Christ said. That's what he's reinforcing. That's what we have here in this text. Friends, how do you respond to God when he reveals himself through his word? Lord, help us today to contemplate that thought and to be mindful that you are a gracious God who's granted us the privilege of knowing him through his word. Thank you, Lord, for all the things you show us. Help us, Lord, to fear you rightly and to worship you carefully. Lord, to glorify you as our great God and Savior. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.